Yesterday, I, uh, I received a text from a guy who showed me the number one song, Christian song, or at least the number one song on the Christian album side of Apple that just replaced Lauren Daigle's song is a song by a young lady who is by self-definition queer. And um, she was the daughter of a liberal Episcopal priest. And the song, the number one song, was a song about, it basically just ravaged church youth groups and church mission trips. That was what the song's content was about. She uses expletive language in the song. And basically, people said, we did to her song what Reddit did to GameStop. And they ratcheted it up to the number one position because you know what? A lot of people just want to know what the number one song is and they listen to it. And you have a lot of people saying, wow, you know, I really love her authenticity. I love the fact that she's talking about that. And she's given all kinds of interviews now about coming out as queer and how it hurt, you know, she has been so rejected by bigots in the church. Couple that with what happened with Max Lucado last week. He preached at the National Cathedral. When he preached there, there was such an uproar, not because of what he said about the Holy Spirit, which he was preaching on there, but what he said years ago when preaching from God's Word about marriage. And how homosexuality is wrong. Lesbianism is wrong. And the two priests got so much blowback, they apologized. Well, just a couple of days ago, he apologized for being insensitive, for not taking into account all this stuff. Now listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't love sinful people. We should. We're all sinful. But we shouldn't apologize for preaching the truth. So if you're going off on a tear of your own opinions, that's one thing. But when you're preaching what God's Word says, there is no apology needed. But we're getting to a point where this is going to be hate speech and it's fast approaching. And what are we doing as the church? What is the church doing? We've so blurred the lines today of church that this young lady who penned this number one song supposedly, talks about her church that has homosexual and lesbians serving in leadership positions in the church because you can profess Jesus and love for God and still do those things and practice those things. They're posers. They're not professors of true belief. They may even be professors, but they're not true believers. They don't have a baptism of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit will not let you continue to walk in disobedience. And there's one Spirit. There's not one for one group over here and one for another group over here. It's the same Spirit. When Luke wrote Acts, he wanted to show what it looked like when God's followers filled with His Spirit did the Lord's work and the Gospel went from Jerusalem to Rome. And he uses this phrase six different times. Uh, He interchanges three times he says the church, three times he says the Word. The Word multiplied, the church multiplied. 
The church increased, the word increased. Because both of those things are synonymous. The church is known for the preaching of the word. The preaching is not a negative thing to preach the word, even though it has become negative for us. And he called his followers to teach his message, which is repent. And we see last week in Peter's message five elements of the first gospel preached sermon by a man who was baptized in the Holy Spirit in the church. The first church message given that day on Pentecost by Peter, 3,000 people came to faith. Not because of a great plan. Not because of some activity that invited all these people there. No, they were already there. God just told Peter to stand up by the power of the Spirit. He did. He starts proclaiming five elements. Christ's supernatural life, His sacrificial death, His sovereign resurrection, His uh, Spirit-giving ascension by going to heaven and going to be with the Father. He released the Spirit to come dwell in us. That's what He said in John. And then His saving invitation to the very people that shouted, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And He says, repent. And today you'll be in the family of God. And they did. 3,000 of them that day. That's what happened. And then what? What happened? You see, they didn't have Lifeway bookstores to where they could go and figure out how to do church training on how do we do church. In fact, they didn't even have Paul's letter to Titus or Timothy that tells us how we should handle ourselves in church. At this point, they had one text, the Old Testament text. They had the Tanakh, the wisdom books, the historical books, and the Torah. And that was God's Word. And that was all they had. But they didn't sit around and have committee meetings and try to figure out the plan for how do we get all these 3,000 people discipled? What they did was right away, we see they got the Spirit directed their attention to four things. And really, what we're going to see in this text, it's only five verses today, 41 or 42 through 47. And what you're going to see, six verses, you're going to see how God reveals how the church should function. And first of all, its attention. What should the church give its attention to? And we see... The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Four things. And second, we're going to see how the church should function in its attitude. We see awe, we see unity, and we see compassion. And then we're going to see how the church should function in its actions. And what do they do? They start witnessing. Uh, they have this uh, generous spirit. And they worship. They worship. They worship. They say prayers. They worship together. 
So attention, attitude, and actions of the church in these verses. We could really take almost, you could take, I could take this whole time just on the first part of verse 42. But this is just an overview. And so as we go through this, we're going to read this. And part of the issue for us is we live in an age where people seek high impact, very emotionally charged worship times together. We seek an experience. People chase after fun. Even on websites, you go to church websites, come to our church, it's fun. They seek an experience. And they blur the lines today between believers and posers. Believers and simply professors. The church is not an event. And what happens when we start uh, allowing people to dictate what happens in the church who aren't baptized in the Spirit, you get what we have in our culture today. That's what we have. And whether you want to say it started with um, Robert Schuller in California with the Crystal Cathedral, who was kind of the godfather of the seeker-sensitive movement, or Bill Hybels at Willow Creek up in Chicago, who pioneered a lot of that stuff. Listen, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be sensitive to unbelievers. We should. But we don't compromise and make that gathering time part. The church always came together for the people baptized in the Spirit. They didn't let the people not baptized in the Spirit dictate what they did. And when that started to happen, it was addressed by Paul and other leaders. So, when we look here at verses 42 to 47, we're going to see attention, where the church's attention should be, what its attitude should be, and what its action should be as we see God unfold this in Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles. So go to verse 42. Let's read it. And we're going to come back and we're going to look at each one of these. Okay? Starting in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. Had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless His Word. How the church functions. How did they function? Well, the first thing you see is Verse 41 says, 3,000 souls. And then the very next verse, Luke writes, and they, meaning those 3,000 people that just came in, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. First thing is, they, they were devoted to biblical truth. Doctrine. 
Doctrine. What, why is doctrine important? Why is, it, why is reading the Bible important? Every day. Listen, I've read through the Bible over 30 times. This morning I'm reading, and I read probably four or five chapters every morning from different parts of the Bible. As I'm going through and I'm reading and I'm just seeing things, I'm going, wow, how, how have I not seen this before? I don't understand. I've even taught through this. How do I not know that now? I've read it so many times. Because God continually reveals through His Word insights as you grow in maturity. Because when you're a baby, you can't chew on a steak. So he has to grow teeth so you can chew it up and absorb it. And so he grows us over time. And so you will read the same passage as a more mature person and you will go, wow. Think of it this way. When you're a teenager, you think your parents are idiots. When you have your own kids, you go, man, those people were smart. Right? Because you grow in maturity. And so, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Biblical truth. Jude, the brother of Jesus in Jude 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith. And how does faith come, Brad? By hearing the Word of God. By hearing the Word of God. And if you don't know the Word of God, how are you going to preach the Word of God? Right. You've got to know it. 2 Peter 2.19. See, he, we, the problem, we have so many people in this country who think church is an event. And everything about it, I mean, I heard one person talking about a church up in uh, Georgia. Uh, and man, it was like going to a rock concert. It was awesome. That was their description. Now listen, we seek an experience. And you think about Peter. There was no greater experience than Peter going up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus Himself was glorified. He he was in His glory. And it was so amazing. Peter thought that Messiah was announcing the beginning of His kingdom. And he wanted to erect tents. Do you know what that means? He thought it was the Feast of Tabernacles, which they believe that's when Messiah is coming back. He didn't want tents just to stay there. He thought, this is it. There was no greater experience that you could have than to be in front of Jesus who was displaying His God-like glory right there in front of them. And you know what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19? He says, listen, we were up on the mountaintop. We saw Him in His glory, but... We have a more sure prophetic word. In other words, our faith is not based on an experience, it's based on God's word. Now that that's that's an indictment to all the people that seek an experience. Colossians 3:16, 17, 18, 19 talks about. Letting the Word of God dwell in you. That means to live in you. How can it live in you if you never crack it open? 1 Timothy 4.6 When Paul's telling Timothy, he tells him to be trained with the words of the faith. 
So why do we have such a hard time reading this? Why, why do I talk to guys? And I, I remember one guy got really irritated with me one time because he said, you just keep trying to get me in the Word. I tried to tell you I don't understand it when I read it. Maybe we're not baptized in the Spirit if we're not getting any understanding. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to get off this milk toast gospel that's been preached out in our world and start getting into the gospel message that our God reigns. He says here they were devoted to the apostles' teaching biblical truth. That's the first thing they direct their attention to right off the bat. Second, it says fellowship. And the fellowship... That word there is koinonia, used 37 times. Do you know it's not mentioned in the Gospels once? There's no church there in the Gospels yet. But this is the birth of the church. And the word koinonia means shared. It is a shared thing. It's a common shared partnership. We're not spectators, guys. You don't come into the body of Christ as an individual to live your lone life in the Word, praying on your own. No, you're part of a group. That's, it's a shared experience. One flock with one shepherd. One building with one cornerstone. One family with one father. That's what we're supposed to be. Paul gives a great illustration over in 1 Corinthians 12. Flip over there real quick. 1 Corinthians 12. He's dealing with Corinth. Remember what was going on with Corinth? There was a lot of division happening. Right? Remember some were saying, hey, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. He baptized me. That makes me more special than you. I think that's why Jesus probably didn't baptize anybody. Can you imagine if you had been baptized by Jesus? But there was all this division going on. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Remember, Christ means Messiah. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And he says, but if you're a slave or free, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is if you're in Christ. We have one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ. He's talking about people and he says, and individually members of it. In other words, you play a role in the body of Christ. And Jerry's role is different from Chuck's role, is different from Joe's role, which is different from my role. We all play a part. And if somebody's hurt, we need to help them come around them, not be just, you know, unmoved by it. Can you imagine stubbing your toe and going, that doesn't hurt, that's my toe? No, because your whole body hurts. Right. So this analogy Paul gives is really good. This metaphor is really good about the body. That's what is supposed to be the body of Christ. Now, do we have that? Is that what characterizes our churches? Our gatherings of communities of faith? No. It was about community relationship. They devoted themselves to that. You know why? Because there was no posers there in that body. Nobody would have been so foolish to be in that body at that time if they didn't believe it and had not had the baptism of the Spirit. Our problem is we've created communities where anybody can be in there. You don't have to be baptized in the Spirit, so it's made up of posers, and we don't have a mutual sharing in the Gospel. People don't even really believe the Gospel that are parts of these churches. Just like that young lady I talked to earlier. They don't know what the gospel is. They think it's a self-help thing. They think it's just to make my life better. And because we live in such an individualistic culture, that is what people get. When you got people telling them, if you come to Christ, you'll have a big bank account. If you come to Christ, you'll have health and wealth. If you come to Christ, you don't have to worry about anything anymore because it's all about you and your world. It's not about the body. So what do we expect with people when they come in? I don't like him. He's not a good preacher. I don't like what he says. So we drive an hour and a half to go to a church on the other side of town to be in a group of people we don't know and don't see but one time a week for an hour. We don't know them. So there's no shared community. No koinonia. Instead of being where we are in a church as long as it preaches God's Word and is not heretical. Why? It's because it's about, oh, they have great worship music. I want to go for the worship music. Because it's about an experience and not a shared salvation of Jesus Christ where we are. That's what they had that day. They didn't have a big show, is what I'm saying. Because it was about relationship. We miss that today very badly. Fair, they had fellowship. They had breaking of bread. That was the next thing. They, they had these love feasts. They would get together with people outside of just coming to hear about the Word taught. They would actually break bread together. They would have meals together. And then at the end of these love feasts, they would celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the bread and the cup. That's what they did. 
because their fellowship was based on the gospel. It wasn't even based on the fact, I like Chuck, he's a good guy, so I'm going to hang with him some. You know what, that Brad, I like him, so I'm going to hang with him. The fellowship was not just based on their personal likes and dislikes. It was based on the fact they were believers in Christ. Flip over to 1 John real quick. 1 John 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. This is John talking. So that you too may have what? Koinonia with us. And indeed, our koinonia, our common shared togetherness, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and we proclaim to you. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we, have, we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. What we're seeing in our country right now, guys, started back in the 60s with a sexual revolution that then led to a homosexual revolution that then led now to a debased mind. And it's right out of Romans 1. Go read Romans 1. Started with a sexual revolution. Anything goes. Love, sex, everywhere. Doesn't matter. Pornography. And, 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 and oh, you're just being prudish. You're just, be, you know... You're being too traditional. And then it went into homosexuality. And look at what's happened now. Now we have a debased mind. One guy said there's over a hundred genders. hundred genders. I'm not kidding you. Well, it's insane. But that's what a debased mind is. A debased mind means calling wrong right and right wrong. And we are codifying and protecting with legal statutes now gender dysphoria, homosexuality. This stuff, you couldn't make it up. The founding fathers who did believe in Judeo-Christian values, they weren't perfect, but they believed in those things, would be rolling over here if they were actually here. Because what we are seeing is the debased mind that basically started with the big screen, big movie screen when movies came out. Then it went to a smaller screen. Then it went to the little screen. And now we have our own world that we create. Because it's all about us. And church is no different. I want what I want at church. 
I want these particulars. I have my own iPhone that has my own songs on it, my own playlist. I listen to what I want. Why don't I take that over into my church life? Same thing. The average high schooler spends nine and a half hours looking at the little screen. And that's the generation that's coming up that it's all about us. It's our desires. And it's not about community anymore. And there is no communion and fellowship, no relationship. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not supposed to be the attention of the church. We as leaders, and I think that's what Francis Chan did when he wrote letters to the church. He's saying, guys, we have to get back to koinonia, shared life together. For you guys who serve when we go to Reggie's and serve, that's part of it. Coming here, having a regular life together is being believers doing things together. When we go to India, when we go to Israel, or when we go do a service project, it's doing life together. So that Phil calls me at 6.30 in the morning. Hey, Doug, my dad just died. Will you pray with me? And I'm like, sure, Phil, I'd love to. Or Gil calling me and telling me his mom died. Or just Brad picking up the phone and saying, hey, can I talk to you? Or me calling Brad. Or, or It doesn't matter who. It's just, I need to pray with you. Or you need to pray with me now. It's shared life together. That's what he's talking about here. That was the attention. So they were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to this uh, breaking of bread, which is intimacy and accountability and communion. And prayers, it said. And, it, and it's plural, the word there, prayers, is plural. And what prayers were they? Well, they had a whole bunch of prayers. We say one they prayed in the mornings. All Jews prayed the Shema in the morning and at night. But they also prayed prayers called Amidah. They were the Amidah prayers. And they would be like, I pray with my daughters some of these uh, in the morning. At the end of the Shema, we add this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives sight to the blind, who clothes the naked and gives us all we need. It's an attitude of gratitude to thank Him for what He's done for us. And at night we say, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives sleep to our eyes. You give us rest. But it's, there's a whole bunch of Jewish prayers that they prayed. That's what they were doing. Prayers together corporately. So I said this a couple of weeks ago. In March, I don't have the exact date yet, but we're going to have a prayer time with SWAT where we like we do a SWAT call out to go to Reggie's. We're going to do a SWAT call out to just get together and pray. And I hope you'll come because guys typically don't come to pray. It's uncomfortable for them. They don't like it. I'm not comfortable. This is corporate time. 3,000 people come together and they're praying. They devoted themselves to prayer, but they gave attention to it. But then he says in verse 43 and 45 that the church functions in its attitude is supposed to be one of awe. It says, and awe came upon every soul. Why were they in awe? Because the God of all creation just forgave them. Because 45, 50 days earlier, they were shouting, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. We want Barabbas. They were in awe that God would do that. They were in awe that Jesus would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They were in awe. 
that the Holy Spirit would draw them and help them understand this. They weren't in awe over music. They weren't in awe of a good communicator. They were in awe because the God of all creation had called them to be in His family. I think of Isaiah 6-5 where Isaiah goes, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Or Peter when he's in the boat and he realizes he's in the boat with God. And he goes, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Both of those men were in awe. But it's not just awe. He says, And many wonders and signs were being done through who? The 3,000? They weren't all doing them. It's the apostles. It wasn't everybody. Everybody wasn't popping around healing people, doing all kinds of miracles. It was the apostles there doing that. Why? Because that was their function. That was their part in the body. It's important to understand that. And it says, all who believed were together. They had all things in common. It wasn't just awe. It was unity. So their attitude was one of awe and unity. They valued the unity, the togetherness of one another. They had all things in common. And and why is this important? By the way, people use this to support communism or socialism. This is not about that at all. There were 3,000 people there from other countries. Other parts of the world. And now, they had been brought into the church and they needed to learn. So they were going to stay there for a little while and they probably did not bring enough to, to stay there for any extended period of time. They just came for the feast, for the week and to leave. And so they didn't have enough food and enough stuff. So people started selling their property and bringing it to them to help them. As any had need, it says, they had compassion. So it wasn't just awe. It wasn't just unity. It was compassion. John 13, Jesus said, this is how they're going to know you by what? Your love for one another. When we come to Christ for personal prosperity or our own personal gain, how can we then be expected to care for those around us if, all, if it's all about us? That's why that message is so perverse to preach a prosperity gospel. That it's all about you. It's never been just about you. Even a lot of our songs drive that home. It's about God being merciful to you and you are individual, but you're part of a body. And we really struggle with that. And I really began to see that as I was going to Israel, how communal they were and the way they lived. I mean, they just had a community mindset that we don't have necessarily a lot of times. We picked it, I'm I'm just not going today. And when we think, I don't feel like going, we're thinking, I don't feel like going to church today, you know, because I'm just going to stay home. But we don't think, if I don't go, maybe I'm supposed to see somebody there and minister to them. It's like even coming here. I tell guys all the time, you have something to offer here to people. When you come to SWAT, it's not just about this time going back and forth with the Word. It's also about the interaction and what God may do with you and somebody here. So we got to get out of ourselves and into compassion for our group. But that was their attitude. And then finally, it was their actions. Verses 46 and 47. 
Notice what it says. And day by day. So every day they attended the temple. Why were they going back to the temple? Yeah, but, but they didn't need the temple anymore. They were the temple. They knew they had the temple. They were used to worshiping there. Who was at the temple? Everybody. Lost people. That the people who had not bought into it. Because where was God now? Where was God's presence? Was it still in the temple? It was inside of them. And they were going back to the temple teaching, probably on the teaching steps, and being a witness to people that needed to hear. They were witnessing. And then it says together they did that. And breaking bread where? In their homes. So not everybody sold their homes just a few verses earlier. They were still meeting in homes. Why? They, bre- they broke bread in homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they were still koinonia, fellowshipping together, having that intimacy, that communion. They were being generous to one another. And it says, and they were praising God. They were worshiping, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were paying attention to God's word, attention to fellowship, attention to uh, this communion and shared ministry together. They did it together. They were praying together. That's what should define the church. Not, man, that guy's a great speaker. Not, man, that music is good. That should not define the church. And the church's attitude should be one of awe, unity, and compassion. And we should be witnessing. We should be out being generous, fellowshipping together, doing acts, and worshiping the Most High God. And when people see us, they know, wow, those people are different than the world because who's the ruler of the world? The father of lies. So, I don't know what in this text might have convicted you. It was convicting to me about a couple of things as I read through it and worked through this in my own life. And I just pray that whatever convicts you, whatever God surfaces to you, it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. Like Brad says, it has to go through you. Don't just look in a mirror like James says and walk away. Look at it and turn from whatever God's surfacing for you. So Father, thank you for the reminder. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for Luke who penned these words. And the many people throughout the years who have given their life so we could read it in our own language. For the people that put it together, Lord, that you use to give it into our hands, we take for granted that we have your word. Forgive us for that. Let us be, Lord, a community of faith. Let us be one like you prayed for in the Spirit. Let us be yielded to that Spirit. Let us be generous men. Let us be compassionate men. And Father, let us boldly proclaim the excellencies, Lord, 
of the one who brought us out of darkness into light. Let us not hold back from that. I pray that you would give us a boldness as we walk into our world full of lies and a world full of turning things upside down, that, Lord, you would use us to be your warriors for truth. And we would be unashamed, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unashamed of our King and unashamed of what he's called us to do. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us as your body to do that. Let us become a beautiful bride again. We love you. We praise you. And all praise be to you, Father. Amen.